0: But let's remember the events we, we saw last week, which led up to this moment as last Sunday morning we began to look at this story. Peter, one of Jesus' chief apostles, had had a very disturbing vision on a rooftop in the town of Joppa. Heaven had been opened, and out of heaven, of all things, had come down a sheet full of animals, many of which were Unclean. They were impure. They were inedible to someone like Peter who followed the Old Testament laws. And yet a voice had come from heaven saying, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter had responded with a revulsion. Surely not, Lord. I've never eaten anything unclean. For, for a Jew like Peter, as a faithful follower of God's Word of the Old Testament Scriptures, Peter knew that there were foods, there were meats that God had expressly forbade his people to eat. You can read about it in Leviticus chapter 11. Meat from certain animals, pork, shellfish, etc. Also meat that had been sacrificed to idols, as was very commonly done in the surrounding world of that day. Peter had never eaten such food in in faithfulness to God and to God's word. And here's God now telling him to eat it. Peter's confused and he's disturbed by this vision. Well, meanwhile, 30 miles away in a town called Caesarea, the seat of the Roman government and of the oppression over the Jewish people in that area, there was a Roman military commander named Cornelius. Cornelius was the epitome of a Gentile and a pagan. Not only that, but he was the epitome of the godless oppression that God's people were suffering under. Cornelius was the enemy. He was an oppressor. Only while Cornelius was all of this on the outside, at heart, he actually wasn't that kind of guy. Rather, he had, or we learned, uh, that he was pious and he was devout. He feared the God of the Jews. He prayed to him regularly, and gave generously to those who were needy. And God had appeared to Cornelius through an angelic messenger and said, Cornelius, your prayers to me, your gifts to the poor, have come up to me as a memorial offering. Send for a guy named Peter who will come and tell you what I want you to know. So Cornelius had sent right away three messengers who in God's perfect timing arrived just after Peter had had his vision. And the Holy Spirit spoke to Peter and told him, Three men are here, Peter. They're looking for you. Go down. Don't hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. And so Peter had received Cornelius' messengers, welcomed them, and they told Peter about Cornelius' angelic visitation, and they asked Peter to come with them to Cornelius' house. And So Peter had gone. Even though it was unlawful, religiously speaking, for him as a Jew to enter a Gentile's pagan home or to associate with him, Peter had gone. So Peter is way out of his comfort zone here. But he's piecing together what God is trying to say to him. After all, why didn't Jews associate with pagan Gentiles? Well, a major reason was because of food. Gentiles ate and served pork, unclean foods food sacrificed to idols. Most butchers in that day were priests, and so most meat in the pagan world had been offered to a pagan god before it was sold in the market or at the meat stall. And so Jews couldn't eat this food. They, um, as a result, couldn't and didn't eat with or hang out with Gentiles because who knows what would be served. And they didn't visit the homes of Gentiles where there would certainly be much else in addition to food which could make them unclean. But Peter goes in violation of God's written word because God has told him in no uncertain terms not to call unclean what God has made clean. And so we saw last Sunday that God was tearing down a huge barrier here, a barrier inside of Peter, which was keeping God's people apart from the world around them, and keeping them from the mission that God was now sending them on to share the good news about Jesus with the nations. So Peter goes, he arrives at Cornelius' house, and he goes into this house, which he finds crammed full of Cornelius' Gentile friends and relatives, and when Peter gets there, he has come a very long way. So now, what is Peter going to tell this audience? You know, I don't think Peter knows. I don't think he knows. You get the sense in verse 39, which we looked at last week, Peter arrives and he asks them, tell me why you've sent me. You get the sense that Peter has no plan here. He's being pushed hard by God, way past his comfort zone, way past what he's ready for, and Peter's just trying to keep up. He's in the middle of a big conversion process here, and he doesn't even know where it's heading or where it's going to end. Let's pause here for a minute and apply this again to ourselves as we did last Sunday. Who's your Cornelius? Who's your Cornelius? Who are the churches today's Corneliuses? Who's the person or the type of person who we don't totally write off, though part of us might like to, but we keep them at a safe distance at least, right? On the one hand, Cornelius is an oppressor. He's he's an enemy. He's an officer of the evil empire who's oppressing you, causing untold suffering and harm to everyone you hold dear. He, he's a pagan, unclean oppressor at that. But on the other hand, Cornelius is one of the God-fearers. He's one of those Gentiles who were attracted to Judaism, and and hung around the edges of the synagogues, learning and worshipping and growing as they could. And and so the best you could say for Cornelius is that he's on the fringe. He's someone you were supposed to tolerate, even though he made you uncomfortable. Even though you felt deep-seated prejudice and suspicion toward him. And you really wanted to avoid him, if at all possible. You could picture someone like Peter saying to someone like Cornelius condescendingly, Cornelius, you know how we Jews feel about you Romans. But, you know, you're different. You're not like them. You're not so bad. And so they tolerate him at the margins, on the fringe. And what we have to realize is that today's story isn't so much about the personal salvation of Cornelius and his household. It's not so much about their conversion to Christ, although that happens. As it is also and even more so about Peter and the early church's prejudice and discrimination. And how they needed to experience an internal conversion in order for them to keep up with the mission of God as it went forward. Who is your Cornelius? Who are the church today's Cornelius? Well, let's look at what happens to Peter in today's story, and, and may we learn from it. Look at the first thing Peter says in verse 34. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Peter is in the midst of a brand new realization. Something huge, something new is dawning on him. God does not show favoritism. God accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Now Peter is not saying that all anyone has to do for God to accept them is to fear God and do what is right as if we can be saved by doing right, as if Jesus' death doesn't matter, as if God's grace isn't needed. No, what Peter is realizing here is that Jesus' death on the cross, so our sins can be forgiven and so we can receive God's grace, that that gift is available not just to Jews, God's chosen covenant people who are circumcised and who faithfully avoid the foods that are unclean, and who keep God's law, no, this amazing salvation is also available to uncircumcised, unclean Gentiles. That's what Peter's realizing here. In other words, just like someone like Cornelius could hang around the edges of the synagogue and listen to the teaching of Torah and say the prayers and try to pattern his life after these teachings, so now this kind of pagan God-fearer can join peter and other jews in following jesus as their messiah and enjoying the salvation that jesus came to bring someone like cornelius peter is realizing can have a place in this movement of jews who follow jesus because until this point if you think about the ministry of jesus in the book of acts it had been a jewish thing Sure, it had spread to Samaria as well, but at least the Samaritans were part Jewish. Maybe some of their theology was wrong. Maybe they and the Jews bickered over religion and politics. But at least the Samaritans worshipped the one true God and kept his commands and circumcised their sons and kept the Sabbath and the Passover and looked forward to the Messiah's coming and all that important stuff. And sure, there had been the Ethiopian eunuch back in chapter 8. Philip had baptized him. The eunuch, like Cornelius, had been a Gentile God-fearer, and who knows what his conversion had been about, but I'm sure no one worried about it much because he had gone off back to Ethiopia never to be heard from again. So he's not our problem. The earlier believers, they didn't have to deal with the Ethiopian eunuch, but they have to deal with Cornelius. He's right there in Judea with his Gentile family and friends, a whole community of pagans who are in people's faces. Cornelius has to be dealt with. And he was not Jewish. He was not part of God's people. So what role, what place would he have among the followers of Jesus who were all Jewish? Well, Peter figures based on the surprising ways that God has been leading him in recent days that he should tell Cornelius and his guests about Jesus. And so Peter starts in. Notice in verse 37, Peter assumes that Cornelius and the others had already heard something about Jesus. Peter says, you know what has happened throughout the province of Judea. Are you surprised they know? I mean, think of all the miracles Jesus did and all the crowds that he gathered. Everyone in Judea had heard something about Jesus. Even a Gentile like Cornelius but, but what did any of it mean for them as Gentiles? Did it mean anything? That's what Peter needs to address. And, and he starts by just telling what he as a Jewish follower of Jesus experienced and believed. How it began with John the Baptist, the Jewish prophet, who called people to repent and to turn back to God. And then how God had anointed Jesus, a Jewish man from Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. God had been with Jesus as he went around in Galilee and Judea doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil. We're witnesses, Peter says, of all that Jesus did in Jerusalem and in the country of the Jews. But then they killed Jesus on the cross or on the tree, as some translations put it. The Romans would use any large piece of wood they could find to nail you up if that's what they decided they were going to do. And and crucifixion was, was something Cornelius would have known all about. It was something that perhaps he had presided over. He may have been involved in the crucifixion of Jewish people. He knew that it was the ultimate sign of Roman oppression and Roman arrogance and Roman heartless disdain, especially for those who dared to stand up against Roman authority. But Peter continues, verse 40, God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating Him and causing Him to be seen, though not by everyone. Here, did you ever wonder why the risen Christ only showed Himself privately to His closest followers and not publicly to the masses? I think because only his closest followers could be trusted to understand Jesus' heart and Jesus' way. Which if you remember back to the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, is a very upside down, counterintuitive way. I think only Jesus' closest followers could could be trusted to steward and to lead his movement and to spread it and what it all meant, um, to speak to what it all meant and, and how followers of Jesus should live and pattern their lives. Because otherwise, if Jesus had revealed himself risen publicly, you'd have charlatans running around, drawing a crowd by their story of, of how they had seen the risen Jesus and creating some new cult around it. Jesus would have been co-opted in all kinds of ways. So he only entrusts his resurrection appearances to those who know his heart. And Peter says, I'm one of those who, who saw the resurrection firsthand. I ate and drank with Jesus after he rose. And, and Jesus told us to tell the people to testify that Jesus is the one that God anointed to judge the living and the dead. And then Peter adds, for us Jewish people, all of this isn't some new or surprising development actually. No, all the prophets, all our scriptures foretold and prophesied about the coming of this Messiah through, and that he'd, Offer forgiveness of sins to everyone who believed in him. And then here, Peter gets interrupted. Before he tells Cornelius and the crowd what this means for them. After all, they aren't Jews. And this is all Jewish stuff. So how will it relate to Cornelius and the others? What if Cornelius wants to believe in Jesus? Can his sins be forgiven? Can he become a follower of Jesus? I'm pretty sure Peter would say yes by this point. After all, that's why he's here. That's why God has sent him. But then what? What will happen to Cornelius after he believes in Jesus? Where will he fit? W- will Cornelius still be a Gentile God-fearer? Hanging around the edges of the Jewish church? Because if Cornelius really wants to fully belong as a full member of God's people, the Jews already have a way for him to join fully. It's called circumcision. For a Gentile to become part of God's people, they had to become circumcised to become a Jew and to start keeping God's law, eating kosher, keeping the Sabbath, etc., just like Jews. If Cornelius wanted to be a full-fledged Christian would he need to first become a full-fledged Jew by being circumcised? Or could Cornelius become a follower of Jesus without being circumcised? And if so, if he remains non-Jewish, an uncircumcised Jesus follower, would he become the start of a new uncircumcised, unclean Gentile church? A second-class Gentile church? Because Jews didn't eat or associate with Gentiles. So would Cornelius and his type be a separate Jesus community still on the edge compared to the real Jesus community who were all Jewish? You know, I don't think Peter knows the answers to these questions. I mean, God is pushing him so hard, giving him a disturbing vision about eating unclean animals, leading him to this Gentile's house, I think Peter's being pushed way beyond his understanding, way beyond his comfort zone. He's barely keeping up, let alone knowing what to do next or or forming any theology about any of this. Have any of you ever had this experience where God is pushing you into unknown, uncomfortable territory? Well, at this moment, God bails Peter out. (laughs) Peter doesn't need to know how to finish his sermon. Or or what sort of application to give, or what sort of appeal to give to Cornelius or the others. Because Peter doesn't get a chance. Instead, God takes the initiative. And the most amazing, surprising thing happens. The Holy Spirit falls on Cornelius and everyone in the house. And everyone knows it's the Holy Spirit because they start speaking in tongues in other languages that they don't know just like the first Jewish followers of Jesus had done at Pentecost. And the Jewish believers there are astonished. Notice Acts calls them the circumcised believers just to highlight the prejudice and the division between them and Cornelius' crowd who were the uncircumcised Gentiles. Now, now here's the most amazing thing about this. Nobody knew or expected at that time that God would give His Holy Spirit to the Gentiles. Look all through the Old Testament. You won't find any indication that I'm aware of that God would ever pour out His Spirit on the Gentiles, on the nations. At least based on the way everyone up to that moment had read the Old Testament. This is beyond everyone's expectation. It's outside of everyone's boxes. I mean, think about it. Think in the Old Testament how much trouble God's people had keeping God's presence with them. God was holy. God was grieved by their sin. One time after the golden calf, Moses had to beg and plead for God's mercy, for God to keep his presence among them. And think of all the rules that were then set up, all the regulations, the book of Leviticus around the tabernacle and the temple where God's presence was to keep that space holy and pure and clean. It it took the utmost holiness, the utmost purity to have God's holy presence, God's holy spirit among you. That's why Gentiles were strictly forbidden to, um, on penalty of death To enter God's temple. Beyond just the outer courts. And now of all things. God goes and just pours out his spirit. On a bunch of unclean Gentiles. Just like that. No preparation. No book of Leviticus. No purification. No circumcision. Do you know what this means? It means that in incredible unexpected grace. God is accepting these pagan Gentiles, just as much as he accepted the Jews. God, in sheer grace, is treating them equally. The holy God is coming among these unclean Gentiles, just like he did among God's holy people at Pentecost in Jerusalem. And more than that, God is going to invite Cornelius and his people into God's mission to participate in what God is doing. Because what does the Holy Spirit do in Acts again and again? He empowers God's people for mission to take the good news about Jesus to still others. All of this is absolutely astounding and unexpected. And Peter's like, well, we might as well just baptize them then. We might as well just accept them. We might as well just invite them in just as they are right now without them having to be circumcised first or any of that stuff. Because God has accepted them. God has moved right into their lives. And so who are we to keep them out? But then Peter goes even one step further. Because he could still have baptized them and then sent them back out to the fringe to stay out there on the margins. But no, Peter stayed with them several days in their house and ate with them. That's even clearer if you read ahead a little bit to verse 3 of the next chapter. And staying and eating with these Gentiles was the final act to seal the deal. In that culture, to eat with someone was to accept them as equals and to treat them like family. Cornelius and his circle are now all the way in, just like anyone else was in. Do you see the prejudices that are being overcome here? Do you see how hard God is pushing Peter to convert Peter? This moment is going to echo down through the rest of the book of Acts and down through history as it opened up Christianity from being a small Jewish sect to being a movement of people all over the world. And yet still today, we deal with prejudices. Still God has work to do to continually convert the church, pushing us to open our hearts to treat others as equals. If we could put up the diagram now. Let me put it this way. Most of us, whatever group we're in, our friend group, our church for sure, we tend to view things this way, like this diagram. This is just human nature. That there's the in crowd, right? The core, the the us. And then there's everyone else who's a part of us. And then there's the fringe. There's those sort of out there on the edge. In, In church, we have different ideas of what the core is. Maybe it's those who are in leadership. Maybe it's those who have been here the longest or uh, those who are closest with the pastor or those who do the most work, the real work around here, or those who give the most money. However we define it, this is the us. And then there's everyone else. But then on the fringe is the them. Those who are we're not quite sure about. They don't quite belong. They're sketchy Maybe. Maybe they don't dress right or talk right. Maybe they don't come often enough or pull their weight around here. Or, or maybe their lifestyle would, would never fly if they got closer into the center, and so they stay on the edge. That's Cornelius and his crowd. They're the them. They're the fringe. Tolerated, but kept to the edge. And here's what God is doing in Acts 10, especially by pouring out his spirit on them. God is picking them up from the fringe and plunking them down right in the middle. And saying, I accept them. They're part of us now. Deal with it. (laughs) And as we're going to see, this isn't going to be easy for the church. People are going to complain. They're going to criticize Peter and Paul after him. As these two leaders follow God in this new thing God is doing. People will say these leaders are compromising. People will accuse them of being lax, soft on God's commands. Will accuse them of sinning. Because this kind of change is hard. The continuing conversion of the church is hard. So let me ask again, how about you? Who's your Cornelius? Who's your them? Who's the church's them? You know, growing up, I always assumed that the discrimination was not nice. It was bad. Um, because it wasn't loving your neighbor, right? That's what we're supposed to do. But what I didn't realize growing up is that discrimination is actually a gospel issue. Not just a being nice issue. It wasn't until I became part of an African-American church and the pastor helped me to understand Ephesians 2 where it says, listen, therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, remember you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, without hope, And without God in the world. But now, and here's the gospel. In Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who has made the two groups one. And has destroyed the barrier. The dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. By whom he put to death their hostility. It's a gospel issue. I realized, wow, racial reconciliation goes right back to the New Testament. It was the first challenge the church faced where the unity, the equality of Jew and Gentile was fundamental to the gospel. And whenever today we we think we're better than another group, that we're the real insiders and they're the outsiders because of their race or because of their politics or because of their denominational beliefs or whatever. It's a gospel issue all over again. Because God makes no distinction. He does not show favoritism. God accepts all who follow Christ, who put their faith in Christ. And God accepts them by grace, not by their own merits, not by our own merits. So if God accepts them by grace, we better learn to deal with them and do better than deal with them, to love them as part of our own. If you're here this morning and you feel like you're on the fringe, but you want to put your faith in Christ and receive his forgiveness, then you are welcome right into the middle. You're welcome to belong. Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for reminding us again and again in the New Testament that everything we are is founded on Jesus Christ and his death on the cross and your grace through that to all of us. I pray that we would feel welcome, not because we're worthy but because you receive us by grace, you welcome us in. And I pray that you'd give us that heart for others as well, that we would have hearts of grace for one another and for those who you bring to us or send us to. Amen.